Welcome to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, the Education Policy Podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. In March 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic put a halt to traditional schooling, forcing students from the classroom to the living room. In response to the then relatively unknown threat of COVID-19, Congress sent emergency relief funding to schools. Months later, they did so again, this time with much more money. And a few months after that, they did so again, sending much, much more money. These funds, known as the Elementary and Secondary Schooling Emergency Release Funds, or ESSER for short, totaled nearly $200 billion, making ESSER the largest federal expenditure for public education in American history. So where did all that funding go? And for what? These seemingly simple questions have proven pretty difficult to answer. So for today's episode of The Report Card, I asked a maven of education finance, Marguerite Rosa, to discuss all things ESSER. Marguerite is the director of the Edunomics Lab at Georgetown University, where she also teaches as a research professor and leads the Certificate in Education Finance program. She's been the go-to person throughout the pandemic on ESSER funds, and we're excited to have her join us today. Marguerite, welcome to The Report Card. Thank you for having me. And I like my new title of Maven. <laughs> it's it's certainly earned. Well, Marguerite, before we get into the details, let's start big picture. How much COVID relief for schools did Congress send? And what was it supposed to be for? So you're right. We have three waves. Each wave got bigger than the prior one. All told, it's $190 billion that went to schools. And to put it in context, in context, in a given year, the system spends somewhere in the neighborhood of 650, 700 billion. So the federal government has never put anything like this into the system before. It's really um, the largest one-time infusion of public funds in public education that we've ever seen. And um, there were some needs, right? We know that there were definitely needs when it came to COVID. There were things we had to do to mitigate um, and try to get schools restarted again. And there have been some needs this fall when schools opened, um, but there's a there's still a lot of money. There's a lot, a lot unspent to date. So it's definitely worth noting. So what determined uh, sort of how much a given school or a given school district uh, would receive of these ESSER funds? So the average, well, the average in just the third wave of funds was $2,400 per student. All told with the three some three um, chunks were over 3,000 a student. But that's not that, you know, that's the average. Some districts got none and some districts got over $10,000 a student. So what the way the federal government did send out this money is they used the Title I formula. That's a federal formula that the federal government uses to fund poverty in school districts. So districts with higher concentrations of poverty and a few other variables, like if you're a, a large district, you got disproportionately more um, and things like that, they got more money. So districts did on average get around in the third wave, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of two and a half thousand dollars per student. But we see districts that got $200 a student and $5,000 a student, most larger urban districts that you know will have gotten 3,000, 4,000 or 5,000 or more per student. So it's indexed to poverty. And so districts with almost no student poverty in very affluent areas, they're getting very little and especially larger but poorer districts are going to get relatively more per kid. Right. 
Okay, first, this next question might seem unimportant to listeners, but I think it will matter. So can you explain how these funds actually kind of move from the federal to the school level? And, and what does it mean for the timeline of actually spending the funds? So the, the, the first wave of funds expire first. Um, those expire in September um, 2022, this fall. The second wave, which is bigger, expire in September 23, and the last wave expires September 24, which means they need to be obligated by then, and all projects funded by them need to be completed by January 2025. So that's the final deadline. Um, so not surprisingly, districts are spending the first wave first and then the second wave and so on. Um, the federal government is tracking the rate at which they're being spent. So first, let me explain how the money got to the districts. Um, with the third wave of funds, the uh, federal government immediately released two thirds of the money. And so almost all, really a lot of the money. That went to states and then states authorized districts to begin spending. So the way it works though is districts spend the money and then file for reimbursement from the state. The cash is sitting at the state. And that's confusing even to some districts who say, I didn't get any money yet. Um, and they, they they have, they're authorized to spend it. They just didn't receive it. Some of them also do have cash flow problems. So that's another issue that we could, we could talk about. But um, so the district spends the money and then files for reimbursement from the state. The state refunds it. Those reimbursements happen every month. So they're, they're regularly doing these reimbursements. That's when we record it having been spent. Once a quarter, the federal government captures that information from the states. So not surprisingly, the federal tracking of this money is quite delayed. Um, then it takes them some a while to even post it. So if you if you went to the federal tracker, you would say, oh my gosh, only two or three percent of this money is spent. The last time they've updated that was September. That was for the prior quarter, the school year hadn't even started. We can, in some states, they have their own trackers. And so they're tracking these monthly reimbursements. So we can get a better sense of what's going on with spending and the districts are starting to spend it. So if they hire someone in September, they're gonna file for reimbursement every time they make a paycheck to that person. So you're gonna see a monthly clip come with this um, spending. And, um, and it, it, it's, it's starting, it's not, it's not half spent or anything like that. I would say probably in the neighborhood of anywhere between 10 and, and 20, maybe 10 and 25% of it is spent so far of this last wave. And you said that two thirds of the third tranche, so the big bucket of money went out, but a third was held back for what? For states to write a plan. And I, the, the word plan is sort of a, a loose term for what they had to submit. They had to submit um, an application and agree to a bunch of things and answer some questions. All 50 states now have their plans approved, and that last third of the money has been released. So when Congress sent this money out, I mean, what what were their intentions for it? Did they have stated goals or, you know, what were what was the intent behind all this funding? Depends on who you ask. <laughs> and I, I think it's such a great question and an underappreciated question was, what is the point? So the first wave, for sure, um, districts were buying thermometers and plexiglass and stuff like that, and masks and gloves and things like that, signage. And even the second wave, you know, you could see that there was 
more needs for school districts to try to um, deal with this moment. The third wave um, was not bipartisan. Remember, this was sort of a one party deal. Um, and it was that schools have been closed a long time in many of the West Coast districts and a few of the, even the DC area districts and stuff like that. Um, schools were closed a really long time. And there was this idea that if we lease, release money, we'll get the schools back open. And um, schools did reopen, but it was not likely for lack of money that the problem was, was fear and other kinds of things and other policies that kept them closed. But the money was well in excess of, of that. And first of all, the first two waves were not spent yet. So we know it wasn't really about money. Um, but there was also this sense that the kids were going to be falling behind from all this time out of school. So, you know, we need to get these kids caught up. So there's a lot of language around getting kids caught up, but that wasn't it. It was, it was, there was, you know, aspirations for everything. And we've heard um, lawmakers say, this is, you know, time to use this money to get kids up to speed, social, emotional learning, take care of needed facilities repairs. I mean, the list kind of goes on and on and on. Um, and I wrote a piece, it's not out yet, that ESSER needs a North Star. We need to be clear and focused on what it's for because if you're down at the school and the district level, you're hearing it's for everything. You know, you hear um, that we need, we've been wanting a new playground, we should get a new playground um, with this money or teachers want a raise or a thank you bonus from working hard during the pandemic or that um, kids need extracurriculars to, to get back to speed. And all of those things are probably true, but there's, it's hard. The system has had difficulty sending a signal about how to prioritize among these competing demands. And um, they seem to be going in different directions. Obviously investments in social emotional learning could be about getting kids back on track academically, but without that connection, they just sound like investments in social emotional learning detached from academics. And I think we need to try to connect some of these things. And when Congress passed this, there weren't a lot of sort of reporting requirements and sort of narrow lanes. So at least when it was passed, it was sort of wide open for how it could be used. So it, calling for, hey, we need a North Star is to some degree after the fact. Is that right? Right. Absolutely. After the fact. So the tough question, there's, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of districts out there. So let me pitch a softball at you. How are they spending the money? Well, um, every district gets to decide how they're spending the money. So one district spends it differently from the next one over, from the next one over. So a lot of people, when they ask that, they want an average and they want the average to reflect kind of what most districts are doing and the average doesn't. So one district gave away a lot of money and thank you bonuses for teachers. Another one is gonna lower class size and hire a bunch of people to do so. The next one over is finally, we're gonna fix these facilities projects we've had on our list. We can make a bigger gym and, and you know whatever. Um, and the next one is working hard on hiring contract tutors to do tutoring. There is no sort of average district in that sense, but those reflect a lot of the investments we're seeing. We're seeing a lot of facilities expenses. We're seeing a lot of hiring new people, counselors, um, teachers, uh, reading coaches, social workers, nurses. We're seeing a lot of pay activity, retroactive pay activity, thank you, and also forward-looking pay activity. Like we're more bonuses if you come work in our district, pay raises for the next year, or if you stay until the fall. Um, we're seeing some districts 
use that pay activity to solve staffing problems like you know, $5,000 bonus if you come be a bus driver in our district or a special ed teacher or a science teacher. And then we're seeing some contracts. It's hard to see what they're for. We saw some investment in technology and curriculum and we're seeing a lot of something called other. And other is maybe I'm using that as a catch-all category. Some states call it other, some states call it continuing operations. So it means all the other stuff a district would spend money on. Um, and I, I don't mean that in a way to, I, I'm, I'm not sort of being sarcastic about it. I'm saying districts basically have a budget. They, they wanna spend so many dollars. They didn't get as many as dollars as they hoped. So they use the federal funds to backfill their budget. And that's continuing operations. So we're seeing a lot of that. And what does it really mean? It's, it's hard to tell, except that there's a lot of money in schools right now. So, you know, you just you, you said a couple of things. You just said there's a lot of money in schools right now, which is not normal, right? We rarely hear, man, we got a lot of money. What are we going to do for it? And then earlier you said this money has to be spent relatively soon, right? 2025. That's not that far away. And that seems to make actually a difficult situation. You need to spend this money or you lose it. And there's some hard ways to spend it within that time frame. Can, can you talk about sort of the fiscal cliff aspect of this and how hiring plays into this? Um, what's hard for districts when they want to spend this money? Yeah, right, right after this last round was passed, we got a bunch of emails like the day going, how am I supposed to spend this? We're from districts. They were worried um, about trying to spend that money that quickly, partly because whenever you, usually when you spend money as a district, a portion of that feels like a recurring cost. So if you give people a pay raise, they're expecting that higher pay next year and the year after and the year after. And if you run out of money, how do you do that? Or if you hire people, they're expecting that job next year and the year after. So this recurring cost element has made many of them nervous. So um, some of them are plowing for anyway and, and hiring people. And they're either thinking, you know, I, I hope the system realizes if I have to go lay a bunch of people off, they'll, they'll give me more money. Or, um, you know, I just, I don't have a plan for that. And they, and many of them don't have a plan for that. So um, that has been a, an issue. And some of them are using, that's partly the appeal of facilities projects. They're not recurring, right? If I redo the gym, the money, I finish the gym and no one's saying, I don't have to lay anyone off because I ran out of money. So that's been uh, an, an issue as part of this. Another big part of this is if you're spending money as a school district, most of the money that you spend isn't on stuff. It's on it's on people, right? It's on salaries. So 80 or more percent is labor. Right. So if, if you have such high labor costs and then you have a, a bunch of money to spend, then uh, the easiest way to spend this is on facilities or on buying stuff. But that can only eat up so much of this money, especially if you've gotten a lot of money from these ESSER funds. That's exactly right. I mean, I think that's been the, the worry is that, you know, you can imagine a district goes into labor negotiations and the, and the union saying, why aren't you giving us a raise? Um, why aren't you hiring more people? You have money sitting right there. And the district has to say, well, I'm worried about 2025. And that's a, it's a, a tough negotiating point for them. And meanwhile, there are enormous student needs. I mean, 
this is the pandemic had a seismic effect on student outcomes. We can see it across the board for every group of students. I mean, the, the impacts are, are bigger for um, students with higher needs, but they're, they're also registering on every race, every income level, you name it, are, there are pandemic impact, impacts. And if kids are you know, um, entering third grade and they're not reading, or they're in middle school and they've missed a sizable amount of math, or they're in high school and they're, they failed some classes and they're not on track to graduate. These are permanent impacts on kids' life if we can't get in there and address them right away. And so that's a, it is actually a complicated thing for a district to figure out how do I solve those problems and keep the district on a healthy financial path in the long run. It seems like there's there's one other component here, and that is now we have money in some districts to do things that uh, let, let's just stipulate the fact they're all great expenditures and they're all good programs and they're expensive. But now we have the money to do them. What is the capacity across districts to do all those things at once during a pandemic? It seems to me that that would be pretty tough. It it really is tough. And I think there are some people who want to just bash on districts right now, and I don't think that's fair. Um, the district leaders that I know are, they're just working a lot of hours. And there are labor gaps everywhere, including in the district office. So I've heard of CFOs who were the ones on the phone sort of trying to get contractors to submit our, to submit proposals for the work they want to do. That's not normally the job of the CFO, but everybody else is busy. And they're, they're super busy, you know, and the, everything about the communications in communities has been taxing. Um, they have to file these reimbursements. Every contract that gets issued is a, a big piece of paperwork that needs to make sure that all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed and that you didn't just write a contract that's going to get you in trouble for something else later. So um, I know they're really busy. The, even if you think a district that's going to do a tutoring program, the logistics of who are you hiring for tutors? Are they contractors or are they employees? Um, how much are they paid? What hours are they working? Where are they going to deliver the tutoring? And are the kids going to show up? It's, it is a, a lot. We've heard from districts that have admitted we have not started with any learning loss remediation yet. We're still just trying to run schools during COVID. Um, so the whole thing is complicated. And there are groups calling for an extension for that money. Um, and you can imagine there are two views on that. One saying they need more time and the other one saying the kids are getting older. They need, we need to figure this out now for them. Um, and I think both of those are true. What kind of appetite do you think there is on Capitol Hill for going back to ESSER and uh, adjusting those requirements? So I have heard that they can't um, without reopening the law. I may be wrong on that, you know, I don't, I don't know how that works, that they can't do that without going back to Congress and reopening. If they go back to Congress and reopen it, remember that was a one party, uh, that was a one party bill. So I don't think they're gonna reopen it. So I guess the question is, is there some sort of way to maneuver to extend that? Originally, the Department of Ed had been telling people, don't use it for facilities. We're gonna get more money in facilities in the infrastructure plan and in Build Back Better. So just use this for um, you know, staffing and things like that. And uh, districts waited, so it's been a year now, and um, 
Now the infrastructure plan didn't have as much money for schools as the districts had hoped. Build Back Better seems to be on pause. So they're saying, you told us to wait and now we want we have facilities projects. So that's the, the push and pull. I, I don't think it's likely they'll get an extension, but I can't say for sure. So one thing that strikes me on this, we're talking about rates of spending down this money and, and, and how you would use it. Could have been, you know, in, in June, we thought, well, all the costs for reopening schools, like there, we already did that. Now schools are going to be open. Then comes Delta. Then comes Omicron. We're, we're still here in the middle of the pandemic. But it occurs to me, like, what portion of this money is going to be eaten up on continued sort of efforts to keep schools open and to deal with the extended pandemic, maybe more extended than we would have expected in the summer. I, I could think on the one hand, well, yeah, there's a need for that money. I could think maybe on the other hand, it just doesn't eat up that much funds. Um, how do you handicap the likelihood of more funds or more of these funds continuing to going to let's keep the schools open? So I, I, there, there is some money going to let's keep the schools open, but probably not as much as people might imagine. So um, we, we're not buying stuff for schools, even masks, they're cheap and they're coming out of other money that governors have and stuff like that, but, or tests for the most part. What we are spending money on is um, substitutes, but that's, um, you know, their districts are can't handicapped by how many subs they can find. So if you don't have enough subs, you can't spend more money on subs. And we do see we do see some hiring bonuses for teachers in shortage areas, special ed teachers and things like that. But again, if you can't hire the teachers, then you can't spend the bonus money. Um, so I'm I don't think I mean it's too much money just to pay to your existing staff and subs to come back and run schools. And so I, I think there is some that is going for that. And but I don't I wouldn't say it's even 20% of the money. There'll still be a lot left. So you sort of alluded to labor markets with substitutes. This isn't a great time to find people. I mean, it can be hard to fill these positions. You know, I, I've I've read and talked to district leaders who's, who are themselves substituting because they cannot find substitutes. How how much is the current labor market making this even more difficult? The current labor market seems to be one of the most significant complicated factors in for school districts and not everywhere, right? Some districts more than others. Some districts have seen so many kids leave that they're actually contemplating laying off staff. And um, so I'm thinking about, you know, places that have seen uh, eight, nine, 10% of their students, even higher than that, leave in the pandemic. Um, or they have sometimes the wrong staff still. And we've seen some of that. They have like too many theater teachers and not enough um, science teachers or something. Um, but we we do, the the, this, a lot of districts right away said, hey, you know, our big plan will be reducing class size and we'll have smaller classes and that's how we'll address the, the learning loss. I don't think that's a great strategy, but some did. Then they went, oh, wait, we can't hire enough teachers to do that. Change of strategy. Or I'm going to hire 25 counselors. Well, I only hired four. So what's the plan now? So we have seen quite a bit of that. Um, the labor challenge has really actually affected a lot of the other operations of school districts, transportation, food services, custodial, things like that, that are um, also uh, hard for districts to handle. So uh, we're, that's just another massively complicating factor right now. 
I've alluded to a lot of the things that are tough about this. Uh, let's talk about some of the bright spots. I mean, this money has enabled districts to do things they certainly otherwise would not have been able to do. What are some things that you've seen that you think are really promising, you know, really, really good ways that districts have leveraged this money to uh, help kids recover from the pandemic, get back to school? What have you seen that makes you happy? So um, a couple of things. First of all, I think some of the pay activity has been really promising. It's it's sort of like the the I feel like a lot of us thought the step in column pay scale was right for um, some improvements for a couple of decades now, and then all at once during the pandemic, we saw some innovative pay activity. So we actually saw districts pay teachers more to fill shortage areas, whether those were special ed or STEM or to work in high poverty schools, when those were kind of no-nos for a long time for districts. We saw retention bonuses, like if you stay and start the school year next year, you get the retention bonus. Um, some of those bonuses were non-pensionable, which we've been wanting to see for a while. We saw hiring bonuses, moving, we'll pay for your moving costs. Um, things like that. We've seen a lot of stipend activity that says we'll um, pay you for extra work, which we think is uh, a, a good thing, and flat dollar rate bonuses instead of percentage raises. That seems like a minor thing, but it's really, we always gave senior teachers more money than junior teachers. Junior teachers where all the turnover was, so that all seemed backwards. But to give out like everybody a $2,000 pay raise is a change in the way. So we think that's been great. Another thing I think has been promising is um, that a lot, some districts are working with parents differently. They're thinking, oh, parents can be a partner in solving the challenges we have. I'll pay parents to get some of their own kids to school. And um, districts like Philadelphia did that. Um, and though we, we've seen school districts pay parents for other things they, they wanted help with for their kids. Even Long Beach was paying high schoolers to tutor younger kids. So I think this clever partnership with families is something that we, you know, it's been a, a good thing. Some districts moved quickly to sort of size up where they thought the highest needs were for their kids and um, jump in with their early programs there. Like uh, we saw some of this in Tennessee, tutoring programs that were designed to, to quickly meet the needs of some of their kids. So I, I think, you know, we are seeing some promising activity out there some of which I hope sticks around. You mentioned a lot of things on pay. We're going to make some changes to pay. Usually when I hear that, I the next sentence is, but the labor contracts hampered everything that we were able to do, and the unions didn't want to cooperate with these changes. Uh, have you heard a lot of that in response to these efforts among districts? So I heard a lot of districts say, I don't want to do it because the union won't like it. Um, early on. And then we watched a lot of districts do it. So they really actually, I mean, announced things like a, a $2,500 flat dollar rate bonus for all their teachers um, that used to just get changed. So there may be more uh, appetite to maybe the, the, the labor reaction is different right now because we're in a pandemic. Maybe there was just, we got to move and solve this problem today. Um, it did seem like these things didn't go through protracted negotiations on that. We, you know, along those lines, we've seen some districts move quickly. So I think the standard, our union won't like that um, response 
maybe doesn't play out right now. And some districts sort of ignored it and did it anyway. And there hasn't been big pushback. I mean, I think these things have been received positively. So um, I guess for those who I'd say are nervous about what their union might, how their union might react, now is a really good time to test the waters. So when it comes to the district level, I'm wondering who sort of bears responsibility for these decisions? I mean, down the line, whose neck is on the line? Um, And and I ask this in part because I'm just curious. There's not a lot of strings to this money uh, as as far as reporting requirements, and and, and that's going to be sort of hard. But I also ask this in light of a piece that you wrote recently for Ed Next about the Secretary of Education in Puerto Rico, Julia Kelleher. And you know, she got in some, some some trouble in the wake of Hurricane Maria. L- let me just ask you to sort of reprise briefly what you wrote about there. And then how does that affect districts across the nation who have a bunch of money to spend? Yeah, so I'm actually going to answer the, the other question first and then talk about Julia for a second. But um, so in one sense, this whole thing, this whole ARP, ESSER, uh, arrangement is a grand experiment. What happens when the federal government gives lots of money to districts with very few, if any, strings attached? Um, and that, we'll, we'll learn something about that that will likely affect future uh, federal allocations. So that, in that sense, how district spends the money will affect what happens in the future for that. But the money is very flexible and every single district's choices are their own. And if somebody's mad about how the money's spent, and I tell this to districts all the time, they're gonna be looking at you and saying, the district did what? You know, so be really clear about that, you know, be intent transparent, make sure you've dotted all your I's and crossed all your T's on this because the money is flexible and the blame will come to the individual districts if something gets spent in ways that raise eyebrows. So um, Julia Kelleher was the, the chief secretary of ed in Puerto Rico during the last crisis, which, for there was a hurricane Maria that hit Puerto Rico. And when a federal a big crisis happens, the federal government ships a ton of money over there and says, solve the problems. And that's very much what we're going through right now. Um, and the rules are confusing around the money. Um, they're very confusing. There's rules around contracts and subcontracts and subgranting and a whole lot of things that you can and cannot do with the money that are very technical and complicated. Um, and that's true with ESSER funds as well. And um, so we, I look back at her case because she re- recently did a plea agreement and is to serving six months in federal prison for after all this time, what looks like a procedural error in the, the way the federal funds were spent. There's no accusation that she took or benefited from the money personally. And, um, and I said, this was a wake up call for all these districts who are in the same boat right now. You know, what if you do some sort of misstep, are they gonna come after you and, and put you in prison? Um, and I think in some sense, that's maybe oversimplifying the case because in Puerto Rico, um, the, the Julia Kelleher had angered the public a lot because she was closing schools and um, ushering in reforms that would, um, ideally, hopefully bring about better student uh, outcomes for the kids in Puerto Rico. And doing that in a chaotic time in Puerto Rico when, you know, there were a lot of students had fled the island and so on. Um, But some of those same, and so I think people got mad 
and the federal prosecution was some sort of retaliation for that, or at least that's how it appears. I think that could happen in a way in any district where students left and they did during the pandemic and ultimately they had to close schools, um, you know, people get mad and sometimes these heightened tensions result in double scrutiny of the money. So I think that's the parallel here, um, but the, the Julia Kelleher case is, is definitely worth paying attention to. It is indeed, and we'll make sure to link in our show notes to that piece at Ednext. Uh, it is a sort of jaw-dropping read. Marguerite, let's look in the rear view. Knowing what we know now, it's, it's sort of easy to say, oh, Congress, bunch of bums, they, they, did, they messed this up, they should have done it differently. I don't know whether that's fair or not, right? I mean, they had to get money out quickly. Now, they did this at separate times, right? The first one happened right in March 2020. This, the second outlay of money, which was more money, happened then in December. And then the, the, the third was part of the American Rescue Plan. And that happened after Biden it, uh, was elected. And that happened a, about a year after the pandemic rose up. So we can talk about these questions. But my, my question for you is, you know, how much would you say Congress bears responsibility for the situation that districts are in now for, for good or ill? Well, I, I think it's, it'd be easy to say, like, let's find the villain here. And I'm not sure it's that simple. Um, and I, cause I don't, I don't think, I mean, I think if all of us went back and had more time, we would have all probably written some of these laws differently. Um, but that's, things were done quickly and they were done quickly for a reason. At the same time, I, something else is happening where we've taken a pause on really measuring student outcomes in any sort of reliable way. And um, there are some, even with the little drips of information we're getting, we know it's not great, but we're hearing from some leaders like, oh, take those with a grain of salt. Don't worry about the, the student outcomes right now. That's the least of our worries. And I think that coupled with all this flexibility in the money and the mixed messaging on what the money is for is an ongoing problem. I do think that our, our leaders should be articulating that this money really is to get kids back on track. We have to get the kids back on track. And um, even if we don't measure the outcomes in an accountability way, we want districts to be focused on that and measuring it in each of their small everyday ways that you can inside a district. But if we don't keep that messaging on you know, this urgency around getting kids back on track, then these 14,000 districts aren't hearing it. Either are their classrooms or their counselors or their social workers or their, um, you know, all of the, the principals and the teachers and, and so on. And this generation will be impacted forever, I, I, I worry. So um, right now, I guess I've less, less, I find less utility in looking backward at sort of who was at fault and more looking forward at whose responsibility it is now to, to keep that, that mess, that focus on students. So there's a lot of money out there and we could use some more leadership on exactly what it should go for and to focus that energy on students. Right. Marguerite, thanks for coming on the report card to talk to us about ESSER. Thanks for the conversation. It's great to talk to you. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, and special thanks to our guest, Marguerite Rosa. We'll include a link to Georgetown University's Egenomics Lab and to Marguerite's recent Ed Next piece on Julia Kelleher in the show notes. 
As always, thanks to our producer, Wesley Armstrong. He makes this podcast possible. You can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts. And while you're there, take a minute to leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. You can send us comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Matt Melton.